Okay, the, the title I've given to this morning's message is, and we're back in the book of Acts, by the way. We had a break over the summer. We're back in Acts, and the title of this morning's message is How to Be a Disciple-Making Disciple. I hope that's not too much of a tongue twister. How to Be a Disciple-Making Disciple. And we're picking up exactly where we left off back in July in Acts 18, looking at Acts 18, verse 18 to chapter 19, verse 10. So if you have a Bible, can I invite you to open it? We're going to start by reading the passage, beginning at Acts 18, 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sencri he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And then Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn... And continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. I wonder if you've ever been given a big task to do but you haven't been sure how to do it. You haven't, haven't known where to start. How do I go about this? Maybe kids, it was uh, 
what I, actually is a big task, tidying your rooms. Your parents have told you, you've got to tidy your room, and maybe it hasn't been tidy all summer. It's a big task. And perhaps you just didn't know where to begin. Maybe it's an assignment, an essay, something they've given you at school, even in the first week back, and you're not sure how to get started. Adults, it might be a project for us at work that's given to us and we find a bit overwhelming. It might be a DIY repair job at home that's there right before us, sort of looking at us each day, but we don't have a clue how to do it. I remember my final year project at university, and I chose a project brief from a long list of briefs that were suggested, and then I proceeded to spend the first couple of months completely ignoring it. This is like a dissertation, effectively. Completely ignoring it, because to be honest, I was just overwhelmed by how on earth do I start? What do I do? I don't understand. And in the end, I chose to do the wise thing. I think this is the wise thing. The thing I should have done in the beginning, and I went to the supervisor who'd written the brief, and I said, okay, <laughs> point me in the right direction. How do I begin? How should I do this? When you're given a big task in life, it's often worth asking the person who set the task for their direction on how to do it, even more so when that person is Jesus. In the well-known Great Commission of Matthew 28, Jesus gives his followers a mighty big task to complete. Most of us will be familiar with these words from Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In this great commission, Jesus' followers, individually and together, are given a mighty and noble task. There is perhaps no more important task given by God to his church. There is perhaps no more significant task for us to pursue together in our daily lives as Christians to be disciple makers, to make disciples of Jesus. And it's significant, of course, I think we've said this before, that Jesus here doesn't simply tell us to make converts. He, he tells us to make disciples. A disciple is someone who not only believes in Jesus, but who follows him. Someone who makes it their aim to personally know him and please him and obey him. Someone who increasingly displays his character in their lives. That's what a follower is. And so to make disciples is to dedicate ourselves to helping other people follow Jesus. Even while we're following and, and striving to follow him ourselves. And all who follow him are called to play a part in this commission. Uh, Mark Dever, in a great little book called Discipling, says this. He says, disciples disciple. The Christian life is the discipled life and the discipling life. And this great commission is given to all those who would be disciples of Jesus. Now, I know the question that might be most prominent in the forefront of our minds right now is, what has this got to do with our passage we just read in Acts? Not here to speak about Matthew 28 this morning. What, what's the connection? Well, as I've been reading and studying this passage in Acts this week, what stood out to me is the common thread holding all of these different people and places and encounters together is that here we've got an abundance of disciple-making encounters. Here we have genuine, real-world examples of Christian disciples making disciples. 
making disciples and helping those disciples grow so that they can disciple others too. This section in Acts, I think, is a living picture of the Great Commission in action. And so through these encounters, we can learn a lot. And I think Luke puts these together to show us a number of things. We can see in this passage the specific tools and methods that God has given us to make disciples. We're going to see the vital heart attitude which we ought to have in order to help others follow Jesus. And we'll also see the posture we should adopt at the same time as disciple-making, the posture we should adopt as lifelong, teachable disciples of Jesus for ourselves. So it's this theme of how to be a disciple-making disciple that I want us to focus on in this passage this morning. And um, I think the best way actually to go about this is uh, very simple headings. I want to go character by character. First Paul, uh, then Priscilla, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, and then Apollos. Because I'm confident we're going to see the same disciple-making values coming to the surface uh, in each of these characters, in each of these uh, Christian brothers and sisters from many, many years ago. So let's, we'll start with Paul. And just to, just to set your mind at rest. It's okay. It's good. We need more like backing music, I think. That would, <laughs> that would liven things up. Going to start with Paul. And just to set your minds at rest, we're going to spend the most of the time with Paul, okay? So don't worry if we seem like we're with him for a long time. Luke just has more to say about him in this, uh, in this chapter. Okay, so what can we see then, first of all, and learn from Paul about what it means to be a disciple-making follower of Jesus? First of all, we see that discipling takes time and patience. Our passage begins by telling us that after this, Paul stayed many days longer, verse 18. That's a reference to the fact that this great traveling missionary and apostle has just stayed an entire year and six months in one place, in Corinth, teaching the word of God among them. And then when they ask him to stay longer, although he has to decline, he says that God willing, I want to come back and I want to see you again. I'll I'll try and come back to you. Then he visits the church in Caesarea. Then he returns to his home church and spends time there with his fellow believers. Then he departs and goes around all the churches he's already helped to plant in that region, going, verse 23, from one place to the next, through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. I think we could only imagine what a joy it must have been for those churches to see Paul turn up on their doorstep. He couldn't text ahead or anything, but there he is. He's appeared again. The father, their, their father in the faith. There he is, Paul with them, so eager and willing to invest his time with them again. You see, Paul was not a fly-by-night preacher. He was not a gospel uh, crop-spraying biplane who would just spray people with the gospel from 1,000, 10,000 feet in the air and then quickly disappear over the horizon before they knew what was going on. Paul gave himself to real people, sowing the seeds of the gospel into individual hearts, into into people with their own names and stories, people he could look in the eyes of, they could look back at him, endeavouring to connect with the people he was leading to Jesus and then discipling for Jesus. No doubt that many times with all of the small talk, and I, I don't know what the equivalent of coffee was back then, Uh, I'm guessing it wasn't as good, but whatever they drank. But with all of that, the small talk, the coffee, the friendly relationship that goes with a personal face-to-face ministry. 
We see then his investment of time and patience again when he arrives in Ephesus. And there he finds that small group of just 12 men or so. What does the great apostle Paul, the great apostle Paul, what does he do when he finds this small group of men? You think about Paul, he is, he's been to some places where he's preached to great crowds, great gatherings of believers or unbelievers. What's he going to do when he finds a tiny little group? I've heard there are some preachers, I don't think fortunately I've, I've met them, but there are some preachers who say they won't go and preach in a church unless there's you know, 200 people there or 1,000 people there to hear from them. Is Paul like that? Does he look on these 12 men and think, I, I'm, the, I'm the Apostle Paul. I've got better things to do than just meet with 12 guys. No, not at all. He gives his full attention to them. He asks them careful questions, patiently assessing their true spiritual state. He's trying to work out, are, they, are these guys Christians yet? Uh, where are they at? How can I help them? He takes time to talk to them, and then he tells them about Jesus. And then he baptizes them and lays hands on them. We'll come back to them a bit later on. Then he stays on in Ephesus and he goes across to the synagogue to witness to the Jewish people there. Verse 8, he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Paul is quite the guest speaker. It's not his hometown. Uh, on, the, on the rare occasion when I get invited to speak somewhere else, it's really nice to meet other Christians, uh, and I'll spend a couple of hours there, but then I'll say my goodbyes because I'm looking forward to getting home and getting back here and being amongst all of you, being somewhere familiar. But here is Paul speaking mainly to unbelievers and new believers, and he's gladly returning day after day and week after week for a three-month-long period. Paul is willing to invest time and patience and relationship into making and growing disciples of Jesus. And when then finally, after three months, he can't continue witnessing in the synagogue because some people there are speaking against the gospel, what does he do? Is it now time to get out of Ephesus and move on to new pastures? No, not at all. Verse 9, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, presumably those new baby Christians that have just been born again in the last three months. He takes them with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Paul finds a new venue and he goes on discipling these new disciples, not weekly, but daily. Paul knows disciple-making requires time and patience and perseverance. Most converts are not made overnight, and neither are growing and maturing Christians. They take time and patience, and in many ways, they take a lifetime of investment from those who know and follow Jesus. Even Paul, the apostle to the nations, understands this fact and embraces it. And in fact, the longer that Paul's ministry continues, the more he goes on his missionary journeys, he seems to spend longer in the places that he visits. I don't know if that's because he's just seen that's actually more fruitful. Um, maybe it's just God's leading on his life. But that's what he does. He stays longer and longer to firmly establish the churches there. Now, here is the lesson for us here this morning. If we want to be effective and fruitful disciple makers for Jesus, helping people to come to Christ in the first place, and then helping fellow Christians to keep going in their faith and keep walking with Jesus, 
we have to throw out the idea that such a task is going to be quick and brief and easy. People rarely change radically overnight. People rarely change in small ways overnight. You and I certainly do not grow like that. And neither will the person sitting next to us this morning or in the row behind us. Even though we might really see some areas in their life that we think they need to grow. And we can't understand why it's taking them so long. But God has made discipleship to be slow and incremental. It's a lifelong process of people investing in us and us investing in other people. Personally and patiently, all of us growing and maturing ever so slowly each day. Often with delays and standstills and hold-ups along the way. It's rather like driving in Bristol. Okay, we're all used to delays and standstills along the way. Well, that's a bit like the Christian life. The thing is, in other areas of life, I think we're quite used to the idea that growth is like this. If your parents ever kept a record of how tall you and maybe had your siblings, how tall you were getting, you know, they mark it on a doorpost. Uh, maybe some of you are doing that with your own children. You'll know that they didn't measure you every day. I don't know how often they did measure you. Uh, even monthly, maybe, would, would be fairly frequent. I don't know, every few months to see if you were growing because they knew the growth in a single day would be imperceptible, wouldn't it? They'd be wearing a hole in that doorframe in the same place each day. And it might even go down a bit as well as up a bit some days, depending on the time of day and the height of your hairdo at that time in your life and, and those kind of things. But when it comes to spiritual growth, our growth and other people's growth, we, we struggle so much more with the slowness of it all. It frustrates us, especially in other people. And I wonder perhaps, is it worse because we live in a very instant technological age, which is all about speed and efficiency and parcels that you could order after church this morning and they'd be with you before 10 p.m. this evening. What we have to remember is that the Bible draws its illustrations from not the worlds of Amazon Prime and digital technology, but from the worlds of agriculture, nature and farming where the emphasis is on careful nurturing and very gradual incremental growth. And the Bible's emphasis is there, not because it's old-fashioned, not because God is out of touch, but simply because that's how God has designed his church and his kingdom and those he saves to be. His kingdom is like a tiny mustard seed planted and watered and slowly growing, but which will one day most assuredly fill the earth with his glory. This is God's way of making disciples with time and patience and careful nurturing. And that really doesn't seem to have frustrated Paul. He stuck with people patiently, sometimes going over the ABCs of the gospel again and again until they really got hold of them, evangelizing them and discipling them day after day. Discipling takes great time and patience. That's the way God designed it to be. The second thing, the second of two things we see in Paul's example, is that discipling is fundamentally word-driven. Speaking about God's words. Discipling is fundamentally word-driven. Paul is not just hanging out with these people, giving all of this time to them with very little purpose or very little message for them. He's also not there just giving them general life tips from his own experience or tips he's found online or his own theories on what God is like or his own theories on how a Christian life should be lived. No, Paul knows the commission that's been given. A commission that 
in a Matthew 28 sense, we all share to make disciples of Jesus, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has said and promised and commanded. Christian discipling fundamentally involves us helping people to grow in their knowledge of Christ and their knowledge of God's Word, teaching other people what is in the Scriptures, then helping them to know and understand God's Word better and modelling for them what the application of that word looks like in real life. And actually, a big part of discipling is that too. It's not always Bible open. That's a good place to be. But it's also modelling for others. What does this look like lived out in the Christian life? How does Jesus want us to live? Showing one another that so that we can learn not only what Jesus has said, but also how to live it. That's what Paul is taking so much time and patience to impart to people. That's why he stays so long in Corinth, chapter 18, verse 11. He's teaching the word of God among them. That's what draws him to the synagogue when he arrives in Ephesus. He goes there to reason with them from God's word about Jesus. That's what leads him to invest precious weeks and months revisiting all those churches that he's planted. I'm sure he was excited to see them, but he wanted to bring God's word to them as well. He could be off. This, again, this is the apostle. It does amaze me. I haven't really got over this as I thought about this this week. This is the apostle to the Gentiles. He could be off doing evangelism constantly. But he knows it's just as important to return and strengthen existing believers by teaching them more from God's words. And it's his commitment to passing on God's word that's really at the heart of how he helps those 12 men in Ephesus at the beginning of chapter 19. Clearly, these men don't have the Holy Spirit. In fact, they say they've not even heard of the Spirit. So uh, clearly, these men aren't believers yet. Paul sees that their problem runs much deeper than no Holy Spirit. He sees they don't have the Spirit because they're not yet Christians. And they're not yet Christians because they haven't heard and believed the message about Jesus. They know nothing of the person and work of Christ. They, They don't know about the cross and the empty tomb, let alone Pentecost. Maybe you've had that experience of being away on holiday. If anyone's been away for a long holiday this year or in previous years, and uh, maybe it's somewhere abroad, and you've been cut off from what's been going on back home, cut off maybe from the news, certainly cut off from what's going on with friends and families and neighbours. And then finally you return home, and everyone's talking about stuff that's been happening, and, and, and you're kind of like, what, what's this? What's all this about? And what do they say to you often? They say, where have you been? Have you been living in a cave? You tell them, no, I've been living on the beach, but have you not been keeping up with all that's been going on? It's a bit like that for these men. I'm not saying they've been on holiday, but they're they're stuck in a time warp. They've been overseas. These are like Old Testament Jewish believers living in New Testament times because they've completely missed all that's been taking place in the coming of Jesus. The most they seem to know about is John the Baptist and his baptism of repentance. But they don't even seem to know much about what John had taught. That John came, as Paul now tells them, verse 4, John came telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. So you see, what these men need now, first of all, more than anything else, is to be taught. Yes, Paul wants them to receive the Spirit, but they can't receive the Spirit until they've heard the gospel. They need to hear the gospel. 
So he doesn't go in there and start by laying hands on them to receive the Spirit. That's going to follow. First, he brings the message of Jesus to them. All discipling begins here. And it it really continues here fundamentally with our willingness to pass on God's word, God's truth to other people. Mark Dever again says, Disciple makers are to be men and women of the word. Discipling involves transmitting the knowledge of God and his word. Now again, let me stress, this is not just for those few who are called to public teaching. It's for all of us in our everyday lives and conversations. This applies to our our words and our examples, the counsel and advice we give to other people, the, the example we set before them in our own lives. We help others to follow Jesus by ensuring more and more that all that we say and do is in keeping with what Jesus himself has called his followers to say and do. And we mustn't miss as well the the example of humility displayed by these 12 men here. If you think about it, uh, just a a law of numbers, there's 12 of them and there's one of Paul. And presuming they've been together a while and they've, they've, I don't know whether they're meeting to discuss their faith in God and, and how grateful they are for John the Baptist and his baptism of repentance. They could have easily rejected what this one man Paul says. But they recognize, no, he's sharing God's word with us. And so they listen and they understand and then they believe. And then they get baptized and they receive the Holy Spirit for themselves. Now, I'll just say this. You can come and chat with me later if you'd like to and hear why I believe that this ever so slight delay here between them coming to faith and then the apostles, Paul laying his hands on them and them receiving the Spirit. I don't believe this is normative, that this delay is normally here. I think this is another milestone incident in the book of Acts, a bit like when the Samaritan believers receive the Spirit a while after putting their faith in Jesus. But you can come and talk to me later if you like. You don't have to agree with me at all, but I can, I can tell you more about why I think that. But just looking at Paul's example again, it's no surprise that having shared the word with these 12 men, he then goes on sharing the word daily in Ephesus for the next two years. Every single day he's there in the hall of Tyrannus sharing the word of the Lord. And beautifully here as well, we see the believers, uh, some, of them, some of them, I guess, not yet believers, many of them new believers, they are lapping this up. These new Christians, they want to be there. They want to hear God's word. They want to be taught. It's thought that these gatherings were taking place probably in the hottest part of the day, between uh, 12 noon and 4 p.m., when most people would be off work, it's too hot to work, and they'd be sheltering and resting, maybe napping somewhere, taking a siesta. But these new Christians, they're not worried about napping. They're not worried about the heat. They are too hungry to hear more teaching from God's word that will help them mature and grow as disciples of Jesus. And although we weren't teaching on Wednesday night, it does remind me of my prayer meeting. Uh, If you were there at the prayer meeting, it was sweltering in the office. I'm not sure I've experienced it that hot up there before but so many people turned out to pray because we were more hungry to meet with God than we were concerned about the heat these new disciples of Jesus they wanted to grow they're not concerned about napping they're not concerned about the heat they want to grow and Paul is eager and ready to give them his time and to patiently teach them God's word so they can grow 
Here's the point, another point we need to see here this morning. Something I just want to stress. You don't have to be an apostle to follow in his footsteps of being a disciple maker. You don't need to be a pastor or a preacher or gifted as a teacher to, for each of us to play our part in fulfilling the Great Commission to be disciple-making disciples of Jesus. These underlying principles that we're seeing here in Paul, they apply just as much to ordinary Christians like you and me as they do to the great apostle. And that's what comes through so clearly in our second set of characters now, uh, in the example of Priscilla and Aquila. So let's look at them. I'm not going to spend, as I said, as long on them as I did with Paul, but I want to highlight how these two very ordinary, everyday Christians gave themselves to discipling other people with precisely the same values and priorities as Paul. Okay, so who were Priscilla and Aquila? We, we met them back in July in Corinth at the beginning of chapter 18. They were tent makers by trade. These are ordinary working class Christians. They, they're not especially clever. They're not especially educated. They don't have a string of letters after their names like the man that they're about to help may well have done. They had no special status in the church, but they were faithful and fruitful believers. They'd been a huge support to Paul in his time in Corinth. Uh, they'd let Paul stay with them. They'd probably supported him financially. And he'd been with them to disciple them as well. They'd no doubt learned a lot from Paul as he lived with them for several months. And now we see that they're willing to play their part in disciple-making as well. I love this couple because... They're so ordinary, just like you and me. But God uses them mightily in disciple-making simply because they have the, the faith and the patience to help others understand God's word and his ways. And the person we see them discipling this morning is a man called Apollos. Now, we haven't properly got to Apollos yet. He'll come up on the screen in a bit, but we'll just dip into him briefly now. Apollos is quite the impressive preacher. He's a native of a place called Alexandria, which was a place renowned for its learning. And he surely would have had the equivalent of university degrees and lots of letters after his name. Luke tells us as well that he was a bold, eloquent preacher, competent in the scriptures, instructed in the way of the Lord, a passionate speaker who can teach accurately the things concerning Jesus. This is quite the CV and kind of slightly intimidating for us ordinary Christians. And yet, there is a deficiency in his understanding. He doesn't understand the way of God accurately enough yet. And I say yet because Priscilla and Aquila, as they listen to this new and eloquent speaker in the synagogue, they could choose now to respond in one of two ways. As they hear him speak and are impressed by his gift, but also spot He's got a less than sufficient understanding of something quite vital. He doesn't seem to understand Christian baptism. I think Apollos is surely a Christian here, and he's faithful in much, much of what he teaches, but he doesn't understand baptism. That's a really important thing. It's a deficiency in his understanding. It's significant. Now, here are a few things to notice about the way that Priscilla and Aquila, these two I'm saying older, I don't know if they were actually, that's just how I picture them. Older, wiser church members, here's how they respond. First of all, notice they don't ridicule Apollos. They don't rubbish him or criticize him or reject him. They don't complain to him to other people, complain about him to other people. Can you believe this guy? He's up there teaching. He doesn't even understand baptism yet. Can you believe it? 
No, they don't embarrass him or shame him. They show humility and compassion towards him. But they also demonstrate conviction. They're not intimidated by him, by his abilities and his superior learning, his background and credentials. They don't just let him go on his way with a deficient understanding because it would be less work for them not to worry about this at all. No, they take him aside privately, maybe into their home, to gently teach and persuade him in order to further disciple him. And like Paul, they bring the word of God to him because disciple-making is a fundamentally word-driven thing. Verse 26, they explain the way of God to him more accurately. And in doing this, I think they're demonstrating real faith. Faith in God and faith in his words. Their faith, you see, it's not in themselves. It's not that they, oh, okay, yeah, I think we've got enough wisdom. We trust ourselves to pass on to this man what he needs. Nor is their faith in Apollos. Oh, he's so clever. He'll listen to us. He'll get it very quickly. No, their faith is in God that God can help this confused young man through his word to grow. And I think it's that faith in God that would surely have made them patient with Apollos as well. We're not told how long they spoke to Apollos, but pretty much guaranteed it. this wasn't a one-off meeting. Apollos is now joining them to be discipled by them and joining the new church there. This is the model of, impatience, of patience that we saw in Paul. And it's so important because here's why it's important. Sometimes I think it's easy for us to look down on younger Christians or Christians who haven't perhaps had the same Benefits of good teaching like we might have had over the years. And we can see the deficiencies in their understanding or even in their way of living. And we can see those things as reasons to write them off as lost causes. Perhaps we do sit down with them once or twice and try and, t- try and set them on the right track. We try and teach them and show them what God's word says. But if they don't fully grasp what we're saying pretty quickly, our temptation can be to give up on them. Give up on them ever being willing to respond to God and grow. But when you think about it again, hasn't God been so much more patient with us in our lives? As we look back along our own Christian lives, just just look back if you can, if you can remember that far back uh, for some of us. And um, I'm struggling to remember what happened last week. You think back about how slowly you've grown, about... How long it took you to grasp certain truths. How long it took us to change certain habits. How long it took us to truly understand why we should be living our lives in a more God-glorifying way. We certainly should have an eagerness to grow as Christians and an eagerness for others around us to grow as well. And we should want to help them. But that eagerness for others to grow is meant to be coupled with great patience and gentleness. And it's meant to be rooted ultimately in a faith in God to bring about that growth in God's timing in this other person as time goes by. We shouldn't doubt that God will do this in the end. But we must remember that God much prefers to take the slow road of the farmer, carefully nurturing each individual person, each Christian over time. I think we need to apply, and I'm and slightly paraphrase the, some famous words from John Newton to the Christians around us. Uh, So to paraphrase, they may not yet be what they ought to be, nor perhaps what we want them to be, nor perhaps what they want to be, nor certainly what they will one day be in glory, but they're also not what they used to be, for God in his grace has saved them. 
And his grace is surely at work in them, slowly to transform them day by day more into the image of his son. And God may well have a part for us to play in that, in that growth. But to be effective disciples, we have to have this patient faith in God, patient love towards others as we pass on and model the goodness of God's word to them. Not, not in a matter of minutes, but probably over the course of months and even years. And finally, this morning, once, once, once again, while we're doing all of that, we need to be humble, lifelong disciples ourselves if we're going to be effective disciple makers at the same time. So I want to very briefly now consider and finish with Apollos to look at how Apollos responds as he sits under the private teaching of Priscilla and Aquila. So third heading, Apollos. Apollos, as we already know, he has a heart to be a disciple maker, to make disciples of Jesus and help them grow. He's already been pursuing that. I don't think we should in any way think that his motives are wrong, that he was out there preaching and teaching people with a a deficiency in his understanding. I think he wants to bring other people to follow Jesus. And Apollos surely knows that this very ordinary-looking Christian couple in front of him, these manual labor, working-class tent makers, aren't nearly as academically educated as him. They're not nearly as gifted in communication as him. He knows, I'm sure, they couldn't hold the attention of a crowd like him. But still he is eager to listen to them. He didn't think so highly of himself that he was unwilling to receive their biblical wisdom and instruction. Apollos the teacher, Apollos the disciple maker was still a humble learner. He was a disciple just as much as a disciple maker. And then the fruit of that humility, here's the thing, God loves humility. He blesses the humble. He rewards the humble by bearing more fruit through them to make disciples of others. And that's what we see with Apollos. Having humbly received this teaching, this help from Priscilla and Aquila, Luke then records that he travels with eagerness to Corinth. And there he greatly helped, much more helpful now than he would have been before, greatly helped those who through grace had believed. The Lord used him to help many other people follow Jesus, which wouldn't have happened if Priscilla and Aquila didn't have a heart to disciple people and if Apollos hadn't had a heart to be discipled by them. But all three of them understood that the Christian life is a lifelong journey of growing as a follower of Jesus and that we all need help all through our lives to keep on growing. Here I want to say is one of the many reasons I love the older saints, and I'm doing air quotes for anyone listening online. I'm, I know I'm, I'm old to some and not so old to others, but those I <laughs> consider to be a bit older than me. One of the reasons I'm so thankful for you and for your example uh, is not only because we, the younger, have so much more still to learn from you in life and knowledge, but you model such an eagerness to keep on growing for yourselves, to keep on learning and growing more about your Savior, even after many decades of walking with Jesus. That is how the Christian life ought to be. I don't know that's how it always is in, in churches and in certain places. So I want to thank you on behalf of those of us who are younger, not just for what you still teach us, but for the example you set for us of keeping on being lifelong disciples and learners, still so hungry to know more of God and his word in your life.
This then is the Christian life as God intends it. Whatever our age, however long we have been Christians, God in his kindness has surrounded us with other believers who can continually help us to learn and grow in knowing and following Jesus and who at the same time need our help and our example to help them go on growing too. And he's also put a good number of people in each of our lives who don't yet know anything about the Saviour. And our commission together is to go out and do all that we can to make disciples of them as well. Certainly we don't have all of us, any of us, the gifts of Paul or Apollos, but we are all called by God to be lifelong disciples who make disciples. And we can press on in that. We can press on in growing in this commission that Jesus has given to us with our ultimate confidence in how Jesus ends that great commission. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Oh God, Heavenly Father, please, we pray, work in our hearts today. Oh Lord, we thank you. You have been at work in our hearts as we have sat under the teaching of your word. But Lord, we pray that you would continue to work. Lord, please help those of us, those here this morning who are currently outside of your grace, to come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for themselves this morning as their saviour and so receive the Holy Spirit that they might follow him. And Lord, we pray, please help us, your people, to keep believing and following and serving and worshipping your son. May we never stop being his disciples, humble and teachable and hungry to know more of him. Help us also, we pray, Father, to play each our part, the part that you have for us in fulfilling your great commission of being disciple makers. Help each one of us, we ask, to grow in our ability to help others grow in following Jesus. And may our faith, Lord, to do all of this be not in ourselves, not in the people around us, but in you, firmly and patiently in you and in your word and in your spirit to save and sanctify people for your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.